Good morning, Bethel. Good morning, Barry. Yeah, we will continue to pray for you, brother. We love you. Oh, you don't feel well. Okay. Yeah, well, I think everyone heard that, so we, we will know to pray for you. I feel well. Yep. 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 We will pray for you. Well, this might sound like a trivial question, and in the sense it is, but it actually is intended to make a serious point. Um, this really feels silly right now. Okay. What city has the densest concentration of superheroes? It's not Gotham. <laughs> Except for the fact that Gotham should count toward this city because it's a lot like this city. New York City. Okay. I actually looked it up just to be sure. So those who call New York City their home, Iron Man, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, the Avengers. There are a few others you wouldn't know. Um, I didn't know. Won't take the time to mention them. But I think we should include Gotham and Metropolis because they bear striking resemblances to New York City. So we'll throw in Superman and Batman as well. Okay, now, sounds really silly. But why is that where they're based? And why, why do they do most of their stuff there? Okay, think about it. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 13, verses 10 to 21. Continuing our study through the book of Luke as we fix our eyes on Jesus. So follow along as I read verses 10 through 21. Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. And then we will pray briefly before we dive into our study. And Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. And she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman... A daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he, as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like? 
And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you that you are not a silent, aloof monarch that is not interested in stooping down and condescending to us creatures, foolish and prideful as we are, rebellious, thick as we are. We thank you that you willingly, for the joy set before you, Lord Jesus, you humbled yourself, you emptied yourself of your divine prerogatives and rights, and you gladly, willingly took on human flesh and the form of a slave and were obedient even to death on a cross. And I pray that we in our pride would be humbled by your willing humility. I pray that you would expose our pride and show us how you give grace to the humble. And I pray that we would gladly humble ourselves under your mighty hand, casting our cares on you because you care for us and knowing that you will exalt us in due time. I pray that we would not take our cues from this world that does not value humility, that does not that views the cross as weakness and folly, and I pray that we would see that it is wisdom and power. And I pray that we would gladly follow Jesus in his footsteps, his humble, servant-hearted footsteps, first trusting him as our Savior, the only one that can redeem us and free us from the bondage of our own sin and pride and also empower us to walk that humble road of the last shall be first and gladly take that road and gladly love the least of these and gladly be shaped by your values, knowing that you are wise and you are strong. So, Lord, please, by your word, would you help us not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds as we study your word. We need your spirit to come and open our eyes and give us attentive, humble, receptive hearts to receive your word like good soil receiving good seed. And we pray that it would bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an outline in the bulletin, if that's helpful for you to follow along. 
So first point, liberty to the oppressed. Look at verses 10 to 13. Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues. This is actually the last time that he teaches in the synagogue in the book of Luke. Not the first time. We'll look at the first time. Um, but this is the last time recorded in the, in the gospel of Luke. So he's teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there's a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. So he calls her over to where he is. If he was teaching in the synagogue, which he most likely was, he, well, he says he was teaching in the synagogue, He's front and center. The attention is on him. So he calls her over to where he is. So she now is at the center of the people's attention. She wasn't asking for it. Okay, he just graciously saw her, chose her, brings her front and center, and he restores her publicly. Okay, her problem would have been shameful. I mean, it, obviously in a lot of different ways, to, to actually go through life like this is hard and shameful, but also in a, in a place and time, and we aren't without these kinds of people today, and we have to fight it in our own hearts. Um, Job's friends have always been alive and well in every generation, right? So we looked at that even last week, how oftentimes the theology was, if there's great suffering, what did you do wrong to deserve it? And Jesus debunks that over and over again, and once again, he'll do it here. So, this synagogue setting, if we're reading along in the book of Luke, should bring another synagogue setting back to our minds. So flip back to Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, because the content of that message, when he spoke in Nazareth, hometown, it's a paradigm for his mission. It's central for, why am I here? What am I doing? Um, this is central. And so what he's doing here in chapter 13 recalls that because he's actually living it out um, at this point in time in the synagogue. So look, at, look back at Luke 4, verses 16 to 21. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. This is chapter 61, verses 1 to 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So for those who had eyes to see, ears to hear, Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises of this servant that was going to come and do these kinds of things. Isaiah 61, 61, 1 and 2 is happening today. It's being fulfilled. But some people didn't see that. They were blind. We've, we've seen time and again people that were blind to that and they're rejecting Jesus and they're judging him as if he's an imposter because he's not what they expected. There's another instance of that here in our chapter 13, verses, um, verse 14. So look at another one who didn't see it. 
He was blind. Verse 14, but the synagogue official, he was indignant that Jesus did this because he healed on the Sabbath. So he began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should, it's a strong word, must be done. Those are the days that it must be done, not this day. So come during those six days and get healed if you need to get healed, not on the Sabbath day. So I don't know about you, but I mean, you read that and you just go, what the, like, what is this guy thinking? How can he be indignant over this? How, how, how do you react to this? Why in the world would he say that, do that? How in the world could healing be prohibited by the law? Well, look back to Deuteronomy 5. He thinks he's interpreting the law correctly. In fact, that was the the role of the ruler of the synagogue. They were the interpreters for the people. So he's taking his role seriously. So Deuteronomy 5, you can listen or you can turn back there. 5, 12 to 14 says this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's what you've got to do. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Okay, so in other words, lady, it's been 18 years. Okay, You could have waited another day. This is not a life-threatening situation. You don't need the emergency room. The clinic is okay. Call your doctor. There's clear laws to obey here that take priority over this need that, okay, significant, but not pressing. So the way that he goes about correcting this, this synagogue ruler is a little bit interesting. It seems a little cowardly to me, kind of like the elephant in the room thing, you know? So I'm going to rebuke Jesus publicly, not directly to his face, but I'm going to actually speak to the crowd. So what he's doing is he's, he's obviously correcting Jesus, and he's asserting himself as the authorized interpreter of the law. So how does Jesus react to that? Look at verses 15 to 16. The Lord answered him and said, and notice that Luke says the Lord. (laughs) He doesn't say he, he doesn't say Jesus, he says the Lord. The Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites, there must be more people who are actually agreeing with this man's interpretation in the room. Okay? You hypocrites, plural, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie, that word in Greek is the word for freeing, like what Jesus did in verse 12. Don't you free, don't you loose, untie your ox or your donkey? In fact, wasn't that in Deuteronomy 5, the donkey um, and the ox? Don't you do that from the stall, lead him away to water him. And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan is bound for 18 years, should she not have been released? The loosing word again. Isn't it necessary? You say it's necessary to not do any work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, isn't it necessary that she be released? Okay, there's lots of wordplay going on in this section. Isn't it necessary that she should be free, loosed? If you're going to lose a donkey, shouldn't she be released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So if anybody has the right to be indignant, it's Jesus, right? 
You take this institution that I gave you for your good and the good of others, like servants were to have rest as well. It was given to you to lessen the burden, and you use it to increase the burden. It was given to take away the load for a day, and you give it to give a, you give it to give a greater load. You are making what I gave for rest into work. Okay, so these leaders, they made rest a heavy burden because it's got to be this way. You can't do this, you can't do this. They used to, you know, really apply to the nth degree down to the details. You can only walk this far and you can only lift something this high and only on the back of the hand. It was just crazy extrapolation from these laws and it became oppressive. So here's Jesus and he says, Here's why I came, to release the captives. I came to bind and plunder the strong man. Remember that? Earlier on when Jesus was, was accused of, of casting out demons by the power of Satan, and he says, house divided against itself won't stand. I, I came to bind and plunder the strong man's house. So I'm not going to come ask you, Mr. Synagogue ruler, when I say to the strong man, let my people go. I don't need to ask you. So he's asserting himself, obviously, as the true interpreter of the law. So the point on the outline is, how much more, you hypocrites? And I mean that in two senses. First, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay, so Jesus turns, he responds to this synagogue ruler, those who side with him, he calls them hypocrites because of the inconsistency. I mean, would you, would you let your animal die of thirst? Actually, I should say it differently. Your animal wouldn't die of thirst. So it's not a life-threatening necessity, but you still loose your animal and you go and water it. So yes, it wasn't life-threatening for her you know, to not be healed on this day, but still, that doesn't mean she shouldn't be healed. Okay, why is it okay for you to untie your donkeys or your oxes on the Sabbath to water them? So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater to shame them with how unloving and misguided their application of the Sabbath law was. So look at the parallels here, how he argues from the lesser to the greater. There's a great little um, chart in, in one commentary by Garland that shows some of this. So what do the, the synagogue ruler, others like him, the hypocrites, what do they do? They, they untie their ox or donkey. Here's a daughter of Abraham. The ox or donkey is bound in a stall. And what, for a few hours? She's being bound by Satan for 18 years. They are loosing their donkey physically or ox. She is being loosed spiritually with physical consequences. There's this necessity to work six days and Jesus says, no, there's a necessity for divine healing and liberation for the captives on any day, including the Sabbath. So there's this argument from the lesser to the greater. You are betrayed, leaders, by what you yourselves do on the Sabbath. You treat your animal better than this suffering daughter of Abraham. But there's another sense in which this is a how much more argument. The first sense is a statement, in a sense, in the lesser to the greater argument. How much more? It's a statement. Well, then you could also look at it this way, more like a question, a rhetorical question. Do you remember that fig tree thing last week? Remember how he said in chapter 12, boy, you, you can tell when the weather's coming. You can analyze the weather 
and know what's coming, but you don't see the signs. Like this is really dangerous how you're blind. You're not reading the times. And he gives this parable of the fig tree, and he comes looking for fruit. He had come year after year, three years, and it's bearing no fruit. And so, so the owner of the vineyard says, cut it down. And the vine dresser, the gardener, intercedes for that tree and says, just give it another year. I'll, I'll dig and put fertilizer around it. And, and if it bears fruit, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. So what that is, is one, a statement of the fact that God is patient and merciful. But also, what it sets up is the fact that some fertilizer is coming. And how will you respond? Will you see the signs when they're put in front of you? So, in other words, what, this is what it becomes. How much more do I need to do and say for you to actually get it and bear fruit? You see? What do I need to do? What's it going to take for you to listen? What is it going to take for you to heed the signs of the times? Okay, this, this healing of the bent woman is like fertilizer for the fig tree. And you know what? Rather than viewing, smelling the fertilizer as life-giving, you think it stinks. So the miracles that Jesus performs, they're signs, okay? They're part of the signs of the times, and Jesus warns his listeners, they need to analyze them. They need to wake up, smell the coffee, stay alert, okay? You can do it with the weather, but as far as reading the coming of the kingdom, you're blind as a bat. You're not getting this. So how are they going to respond to this weather sign? This sign that says so clearly, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, is happening in your midst. It's the coming of the kingdom. Well, this is actually why, it might seem like it's two completely different ideas, but that's why we're including 18 to 21 this morning as we study this section. Because Jesus goes on to say, therefore, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Because you need to understand what it's like to see that this is exactly what should happen. She might look like a little mustard seed. But this is the mustard seed of the kingdom, and it's going to become a great tree. You might look down on her and see her not as a display of power and the coming of the kingdom, but as inconsequential and small. Oh, no. You need to know what this is. So he says, therefore, let me tell you about the kingdom. You see how it's tied together? We'll talk about that more in a minute. So, again, remember how the synagogue ruler, he's asserting himself as the authorized interpreter of the law. Jesus responds, challenges that challenge that he throws down. Who's the authorized interpreter? It's Jesus. He's saying that the meaning of the Sabbath, okay, even the meaning of the law, is not rules in order to burden people, not rules as in a job description, and if you fulfill the job description, you'll get the wages. It's not like that. It's more like his commands are a doctor's prescription so that you can be made whole. Okay, so they're abusing the law. Sabbath was for, to celebrate the liberation of God's people. Look, look back at Deuteronomy 5 again. Let's read a little bit further because this is what's kind of going on with the meaning of the Sabbath. We read um, 12 to 14, but it goes on and says, 
here's why you should do this, so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And then verse 15 says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Did you ever know that connection? The Sabbath is partly a call to celebrate God's deliverance. If you have any doubt today that he can provide or protect you, remember the Exodus. And let the Sabbath be like a little string tied around your finger to remind you of God's power to protect and provide. Celebrate his deliverance on that day. Okay, those who have tasted the liberation of God, they can't bind others with this unloving, heavy burden. So the synagogue ruler is trying to get in the way of Jesus freeing this woman on the Sabbath, which is so ironic because the Sabbath was a celebration of God freeing his people, right? So one writer says, the clash with authority is not over the rules, but over who rules. So what's more fitting on the Sabbath than for Jesus to plunder the strong man? First Exodus, Pharaoh, let my people go. They come out, Jesus... I am going to free my people here. I don't have to ask Pharaoh ten times because this is a greater exodus. So he's going to release captives on the day that was intended to celebrate the release of captives from captivity. So it's ironic that this synagogue ruler is getting in the way of that or trying to get in the way of that. There's more irony. Look at verse 17. There's some ironic reversals here. So as Jesus said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by Jesus. So, so what's happening in the synagogue that day? The oppressed, shamed one, this woman, is raised up and honored in front of everyone, and the prideful honored one is shamed in front of everyone. Jesus' adversary, what did he try to do? He tried to publicly shame and discredit Jesus. And he was publicly shamed and discredited by Jesus. Okay, so he represented the hypocrites who were shamed. He represented them. And the people ironically, are rejoicing. These leaders are shamed. The people get it. They see it, and they rejoice in what Jesus has done. So this lowly woman, in more ways than one, was lifted up. This guy rebuked Jesus publicly in order for the people to line up with him, and he's shamed publicly as the people align themselves with Jesus. Isn't that the way of the kingdom? Here's this this, these are ironic reversals. It's just the way of the kingdom. This sovereign king, king of the universe, humbles himself, takes the form of a slave, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he comes and looks not for the successful ones, the put-together ones, the somebodies, the movers, the shakers, the powerful, the rich, the strong, the intelligent. He comes instead seeking the lost, the sinful, the blind, the poor, the sick, the bent, the unhealthy, the marginalized, the ostracized, 
the captives, and he came to set them free and raise them up and honor them. And so all who judge Jesus as weak and wrong and unimpressive and not meeting their criteria for a a Messiah, a deliverer, a Savior, they are proud and lifted up, and they will be humbled and brought low and ashamed. That's the nature of this king. That's the nature of his kingdom. Okay, so that's exactly where Jesus goes next in this text to to speak of the nature of the kingdom. So let me tell you, therefore, in light of this episode in the synagogue, let me tell you, therefore, what the kingdom of God is like. Okay, you see why he goes there? Look at verses 18 and 19. So he was saying, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw into his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. So, okay, the coming, like if you didn't know the story, if you didn't know where this all goes, and, you know, I told you very soon the, the coming of the everlasting kingdom of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be inaugurated. It's going to start coming. How would you expect it to come? How would you describe it? How would you assume it would be described? Like a nuclear warhead? Like an earthquake and a tsunami? Like a hurricane? Like a towering redwood? I mean, this is the king of kings. This is the lord of lords. He's coming. What's it going to be like? It's going to be like a mustard bush. Mustard seeds, folks, we may not know this because we don't do a lot of farming or whatever, but mustard seeds do not grow into towering trees. Mustard seeds become mustard bushes. And Jesus knew that. And so did the people he was talking to. No way would a mustard seed turn into a tree where birds of the air would nest. Remember that text that Bill read? The two texts? Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 17. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he is like the king of the known universe at that time. And his kingdom was compared to a mighty tree. Great illustration. It's so big and powerful that it gives shade to so many, food to so many, but he was prideful. And God said, you know what? I'm the real king, and if you think that this is all you're doing, I'm going to cut you down and show you who the true king is. In fact, that's when he goes out and basically lives like a, an animal in the field until he comes to his senses. And then Ezekiel 17 is talking about the coming of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God is coming, and there's one is, you know, God's going to take this little sprig and plant it. It's going to become this mighty cedar. Once again, God said he's going to bring the high tree low, So trees as analogies for powerful kingdoms. Going to bring those down and make the low tree high. Okay? So all of the trees will be cut down. Think 13, 6 to 9. Remember, cut it down. Okay? 
that parable. But this little seed, this little bush is going to become a great tree. Once again, it's this irony of the kingdom, these ironic reversals that are so prevalent in the gospel of Luke. What is the nature of the kingdom? The coming of God's forever reign, his perfect government. Don't you long for that day when God rules and reigns, you know, his rule covers this earth as the waters cover the sea. What's the coming of that kingdom going to come like? Don't you long for it? Your kingdom come. Can't wait for that to happen. Every rule is... Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. We think, oh, this is going to be the great one, and then it falls. No, we are all fallible, and history is just replete with those kinds of cycles. And we long for his kingdom to come. What's the nature of it? Well, it begins humbly, not gloriously, suddenly, so this anticipates some of the stuff Jesus is going to say very soon in chapter 13, chapter 14, 13:30 says, "Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I'm the king, bringing the kingdom. Listen, this is how it comes. 14:11, "For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." So this soon-to-be colossal mustard bush speaks to the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And so does Levin, verses 20 to 21. Look at that now, the rise of the kingdom. And again, Jesus said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour. What's a peck? <laughs> um, it's a measure in, in another translation. It's a lot. It's not a little bit, okay? Um, you're talking like 50 pounds of flour, a measure was equivalent of about almost five gallons, okay, 13 liters-ish, a sia in the Old Testament. So this would be incredibly productive for a peasant's kitchen. This would never happen. So it's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. What's the point here with the leaven? Leaven actually typically has negative connotations in the Bible, and I'm going to let David Garland tell you why. He says leaven is sourdough, which had an inherent danger of becoming tainted and then poisoning batch after batch. It was an apt symbol of the infectious power of evil. Plutarch comments, yeast it, leaven it, it is itself also the product of corruption in the dough with which it is mixed. Fermentation process, right? And altogether, the process of leavening seems to be one of purification, putrefaction. I don't know if I type that in wrong. At any rate, if it goes too far, it completely sours and spoils the dough. So comparing the reign of God to leaven inverts the common images of the sacred and profane. So Jesus actually speaks provocatively here, just like he did with the mustard bush. Provocatively here makes a powerful point in line with the point he's making about the nature of the kingdom. What's the nature of leaven? It takes a small amount and it makes a huge difference. It does its work gradually, secretly, yet it inevitably permeates the whole. Now, back to the introduction, okay? Superhero myths. Where do they go when they come to Earth? I know Superman ended up in, what was that, like Fargo, North Dakota or something? Um, but he eventually ends up in Metropolis. When they rise to power on Earth, New York City, of course. Is that because New York City is, the is where the densest population of criminals resides? Possibly, okay. That was supposed to be a joke. Anyway, um, but I think the point is that New York City is the center of the Western world. It's the most important city in the Western world. 
And so the most important people need to be in the most, most important place to affect the most important change. Well, the kingdom of Jesus is different. Jesus loves New York City. We know that. So just don't press it too far here, okay? The king comes saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, co- this king comes and brings disabled women front and center and says in no uncertain terms that if you want to see my kingdom coming, if you want to see power, signs of the kingdom, look at her. Look at her standing erect. This small little healing of this little woman who is completely invisible in that society has colossal meaning. Joel Green put it this way. From a medical perspective then, this woman's illness has a physiological expression. She's bent over. But it's rooted in a cosmological disorder. Cosmic proportions. Because Luke has presented Jesus as the divine agent of salvation in whose ministry the kingdom of God is being made present and in whose ministry the domain of Satan is rolled back, Luke's depiction of this woman's illness prepares us for a redemptive encounter of startling proportions. Jesus does not scour palatial grounds or otherwise turn to the experiences of the elite. He does not reach for images normally associated with royalty and kingdom making in order to depict the nature of God's dominion. Instead, he draws on first century Palestinian village life. In the healing account, some are caught off balance by the nature of Jesus' restorative activity. Out of place, out of time, and directed at the wrong sort of person. Why is this point not made with reference, say, to the mighty cedar of Lebanon? No doubt this is grounded in the dissonance of Jesus' message. God's kingdom is established through means other than the coercive power and intrigue usually associated with the establishment of a new order. And his dominion purposely seeks out persons who do not represent the socially powerful and privileged. That's the nature of the kingdom. Isn't that great? So here's one thing I was really struggling with this week. Beth knows this. Just came home a couple times. I have no idea how this applies. <laughs> okay, this, this is your Bible lesson. You're teaching it in children's church. What's the application, folks? Sorry, there's no little list of boxes to check off from this text. Well, do this and don't do that. And, and some people like boxes and lists and all that. You're not going to find that in this passage. But you know what? There is a whole lot of beauty and glory here to admire. There is hope here. There is healing for the small and the broken and the weak. Do you see what Jesus is doing with the spotlight? He's taking it off. I mean, aren't you glad that the kingdom is not just for the beautiful, powerful, special people? He's taking the, the, the spotlight off of that and shining it in a corner that nobody, no one would look there. There's honor for the shamed and the downtrodden. There is love for the unlovely. There is also loving rebuke for the proud and the impressive and the self-righteous. This is his patience. This is another, this is another bit of forecasting opportunity for those who need to read the signs to see it and repent. 
This is loving rebuke to repent of self-righteousness and pride now, to bend now and bow before this great Savior that He may exalt you in due time. There is liberty here to celebrate. He came to free the captives. If you think the exodus from Egypt was great, Jesus did signs and wonders to show who the real, true, ultimate, eternal king is. He came to liberate the captives. So Jesus is doing signs and wonders in order to show who the real king is. He came to liberate the captives, just like he said he would in Nazareth in the synagogue when he's quoting Isaiah 61. But it's not going to come as expected. The weakness of the cross is the power of God. But have you ever, have you ever tried to explain that to a non-Christian? I hope so. Have you ever come away just thinking, this is nuts, this is nuts. Okay, so Joe Pagan, so what do you believe? Okay, so there's this Galilean peasant carpenter. Well, he was, um, so an angel, an angel came to this um, young teenage girl who wasn't married, and her name was Mary, and she didn't have a husband, and um, he said, you're going to have a child, and, and it's actually of the Holy Spirit, and so God just miraculous conception, and Jesus was born, and uh, this is actually God. It's God in the flesh, and God, you know, in the flesh, he lived this perfect life that, that we couldn't live. He never sinned. Um, Jesus never sinned. He's God, and, uh, and then he died on a cross, and then he rose th uh, three days later, and I'm banking my whole life on that. Have you, ever, have you ever shared the gospel with someone and, and thought, man, this is really crazy? It is crazy. It's completely counterintuitive. And it is the wisdom and power of God. Can we see it? Can we see that it's so wise, it's so amazing, it's so right? You don't want that kind of superhero hero. They're all bad parodies. Yes, the longing's deep. We do need a hero. We need a rescue. We need a deliverer. And we do need one that's powerful and decisive. And Jesus is coming back in power on the white horse with the sword, okay? That's coming. But thankfully, that wasn't the first coming. Otherwise, we're all toast because we're all bent and broken. But he came humbly first, and it's beautiful. Do you see the glory in it? This is wisdom and power. So the nature of the kingdom is pictured in the freeing of this lowly, invisible woman that nobody knew. How does he describe her? Doesn't give her name, doesn't give her any details. Oh, she's so pious, you know, like Anne in the temple. No, it's nothing. It's just this woman. You, come here. She didn't come seeking anything. You, come here. I want to show everyone the nature of the kingdom and who I am and what I'm doing so that the delivering, redeeming, freeing work of Jesus will be celebrated on this Sabbath because that's exactly what the Sabbath is all about. And if you come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest because I am the Sabbath. Rest. 
So we ought to glory in our liberator, the goodness of his rule, and his deliverance ought to be celebrated. So this woman, no credentials, no apparent piety to draw attention. Jesus sees her. What does she bring to the table? Bondage by Satan. What did she do wrong? How did she open the door to that? Weakness, complete weakness. Here it is. Here's the kingdom. How about that for some weather to analyze? And what a segue. Isn't that a beautiful segue? This text to this table. What does this table say? That bent woman was freed by Jesus. Okay, 1312. She's a picture of the gospel, of the coming of the kingdom, because Jesus says that when he says, what's the kingdom like? I just showed you, but let me tell you and give you a couple other illustrations so that you can read the signs of the times. She's a picture of the gospel coming in the kingdom, and Jesus, he freed her, and then he willingly was not freed so that we all might be freed. Okay, Jesus bore the cross to his death. He was crushed under the weight of our sin so that we might be lifted up out of the pit raised from our bentness and our weakness and our brokenness. The deliverance from Egypt was spoken of in this way, Leviticus 26, 13, I'm the Lord your God who broke, brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves, and I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Same language. And even though in this life, between the first and the second coming, as we follow our crucified Savior, it will mean humility, humiliation at times, marginalization, seems like weak lives that we live. We're not changing the world, it doesn't seem. We may choose this lowly road following our crucified Savior. We're going to mirror His life of loving the least of these as he did. No, we can live happy small lives for a big king. And even though we may live insignificantly in this world, apparently his kingdom is coming in our lives, through our lives, as we minister to people who are never going to make the news, and neither are we probably, but his kingdom is coming in us and through us and he's going to soon return, not in weakness, but in power. And on that day, for bent ones like you and me who've been raised up and healed because he was crushed in our place and we're trusting him because he's the only deliverer, bent ones like us who are trusting in the one who was crushed for us, that's a day when we can look forward to it. And here's what Jesus says later on in Luke, how we ought to approach that day. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up the same language as in 13 here. When these things take place, the signs that the end is near, when these things take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your that place in your kingdom is not won by performance and position. 
It's not won by being in the right crowd. It's won by recognizing that Jesus won it for us. And we have no right to come to the table. We only bring our bentness and brokenness and our sin. And we thank you that you are the God who gladly humbled himself so that you could raise us up. And I pray that we would rejoice and celebrate your deliverance just like those folks who rejoiced to see all the good things that you were doing. In Jesus' name, amen.